You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and this episode is the second part of our interview with Lieutenant Colonel Misty Cantwell about her time as a military police platoon leader in Baghdad in 2003. That episode, and all of our other episodes, are available for download on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks again for listening. In the summer of 2003, attacks increased on coalition personnel, Misty. How did your platoon react to that? Um, almost camaraderie, like in a weird weird way of like, okay, now what? How do we prevent this? And it's a cat and mouse game with the enemy. I mean, they're thinking, breathing, living organisms who want to win just as you do. Um, and so how do you outsmart them? Or how do you beat them in the intelligence cycle? What we really started to, to gain insight and understanding, too, as we went forward. The summer continues on. Violence across Iraq increases. How did your platoon, how did your company leadership address that with the soldiers? And, and what was your role in that? So we started to learn over the summer that 12-hour patrols was probably not wise. And that you had to patrol with a purpose. And by that, I mean really trying to work at echelon with all the branches to develop a common operating picture and actionable intelligence. So working with civil affairs, working with the CAV scouts, working with the aviators, working with the fires community to understand points of origin and develop those trends, whether it was for where and when IEDs were going to go off, alternating our routes or when and where mortars were going to come is just something we got much better at. Um, again, just like those battle drills, like every attack was an opportunity to learn uh, and to get better and to outsmart the enemy. Uh, rightly or wrongly, like nobody talked coin at that point. Like it wasn't even in our lexicon. Um, we did a lot of preparing for large-scale raids. Maybe raid is the wrong tactical term. Cordon and search, cordon and knock as it was commonly called, is probably more realistic. And so by October, November, December, 
the greater units across Baghdad were doing large-scale uh, neighborhood clearing type operations. By that point, we'd probably cleared up the preponderance of the large caches, like the residual ammo and everything that the Iraqi army had left behind. But now we were trying to understand networks, and we knew kind of more so what we were fighting. We knew that they were insurgents. We called them the Fedayeen. Like, we we knew there was this unique Iranian influence, but we didn't really understand it, at least at, at the platoon leader level. Um, I was not very cognizant of all of these political dynamics, um, but we would do division and brigade level rock drills, and we would go out on these very long, well-resourced uh, cordons, and we would just search door to door, like all night long, looking for any intelligence matter that we could find. Maybe people who had different arrays of passports. Maybe it was electronics. We wanted a lot of cell phone, like SIM cards and, and chips and photos. Like, I don't really know that we had clear purpose at the tactical level, um, but they just wanted us to gather it up and bring it back. Um, but I remember distinctly these poor families, you know, you're knocking on the door, it's the middle of the night, and you're going in to, like, literally toss the house. I often wonder, like, what would ha- what would that be like in America, right? Like, you're just, somebody knocks on my mom's house, and they just, here I am, I'm coming to search your house. Like, like the translation and the correlation and the purpose, like, I think was very hard for me to, like, rationalize and understand, but that was our mission. Um, and so we would often find a lot of potential IED material, but uh, to me, it really resonated of some of the lessons we should have learned from Vietnam, you know, the disruption in the day-to-day lives. Like, how do you identify friend or foe? And I don't know. I don't know. How did you keep your soldiers focused? How did you present these large cordon and search cordon and knock operations to them? I don't think we were really that deep in our discussions, honestly. I think probably through the fall, even though the violence level was increasing, we still kind of felt like we had done a good thing. Like we had helped the Iraqi people. Kids were back in school. There was a lot of great talk about, you know, kind of the civil affairs aspect and the governance aspect. We were rebuilding the police force. We were watching government institutions kind of reform and come back together. Uh, and I, I don't think, well, I, I know that I, as a lieutenant, I certainly didn't have an appreciation for the magnitude of that mission set and like what phase four and five should have looked like. Uh, and I don't think I understood the political dynamics fully, nor did I understand the actual challenges that we, like the the U.S., um, were facing. I do remember when the U.N. got bombed uh, and that program really like ceased to exist in Iraq. Uh, it felt very lonely, and I, I can't necessarily explain that, but we responded to the U.N. bombing and that catastrophe um, and pulled the security um, for the organization as they they cleaned up and one to think like who bombs the UN and two like now what like they're leaving was an interesting political dynamic that I don't think we really talked about um, but we acknowledged you know kind of across the the force our focus was probably really just day-to-day like survival and not maybe so much in a physical sense, but we 
at that point had been in country for six, eight, nine months. And we didn't know we were going home. And when we left, we left like with an open ticket, right? Like nobody knew when we were returning home. But by that point, the initial forces in Chirac were rotating home or home. And we had nothing. So families want to know when you're coming back. Like soldiers want to know when they're like when I'm supposed to PCS, I'm supposed to ETS. I have a, you know, major family life event coming up, like the birth of a child or, you know, whatever the case may be. And there's there's nothing like there's no discussion. You're just like void of information and feedback and decisions. So I think actually the domestic politics was probably more influential on morale and on operations than any Iraqi politics that were underway. When did you wind up coming home? 367. Day 367. We flew home. Um, so we came, we went back in March um, and we were so lucky, so lucky. Um, we spent the holidays uh, in Iraq uh, and actually... It was probably good for the unit. I mean, to, by that point, your family, we'd all literally been living in a giant warehouse together for a year. We all knew everybody's highs and lows, personality quirks. You know, we had in like inside jokes, like we were truly a family at that point. We were just kind of in a routine and we had a good mission. We were training the Iraqi police. We were balancing that with patrols. Um, We were doing a lot of support missions for not only the maneuver community, but for like civil affairs, for uh, EOD um, and some of the other enabling forces out there. And so I think from an MP, this is what I've trained for. And now we're pretty good at it, right? We've been on raids. We've been on detainee op missions. We've we've proven ourselves to our maneuver brothers uh, in theater. Um, We're fully engaged. So for us, time was flying. Um, When we went home, the mission set was really evolving at that point from kind of the combat to totally the partnership. And then three, like, we just wanted to leave. Like, we were tired. We're ready to go. These people are going to not do it as good as we were going to do it, right? Like, all these things um, that happen when you have kind of an extended left seat, right seat. When we finally left, one, we drove out of town on five tons. So here we are. We've been in Baghdad. We've lived, like, right? Like, we lost one, like, we literally, like, one soldier from the company died the entire year we were there. They load us up on five tons to drive through Baghdad to Balad, which was the airfield, about an hour north of the city. And if you'd been paying any attention to the, you know, intel reports or the terrain, like, you have to go across the one bridge from Baghdad to Balad. It's not really the best route. It's not really recommended to do this in soft-skinned vehicles. And we have, like, no arms, right? Like, we have our M4s and our M9s, and, like, that is is madness. So um, that was a little, like, stressful to, like, think, like, we could lose an entire truck of soldiers. Like, we're just sitting in the back of trucks. So we get to Balad, we fly out, we fly home, and literally when we landed because it took a couple of days to travel, was when Sadr City imploded. And 1st Cav had come in along with these reserve units. And, I mean, there's no way, like, there's no nice way to put it. Like, they got schwacked. Like, it was an atrocity. They lost a lot of soldiers uh, in and around Sadr City along all the same streets that we had lived and worked and patrolled for a year. 
And like, how do you rationalize that? Like, why them? Why not us? Were they just waiting for us to leave? You know, I've talked to a lot of Cav guys that we lived with at Camarobro afterwards, and like, we all feel awful. Like, did we not do a good rip? Do we not do like the security properly? Like, was it so obvious like that units were transferring that they just waited? Like, I I don't know, but I felt awful for those units and those leaders. Like, this is how you start. Like, welcome to Baghdad. I also recognized, you know, how much we had grown just experientially in our tactics, our techniques, even in the, just the communication, right? Like everybody at that point kind of knew one another. And here was a new unit without that, you know, degree of experience under their belt. So that was really hard to see. What was homecoming like? And peace worked the road. So we did not go on block leave. So we came home immediately went on the road that was to enable the company working the road to prepare for and deploy probably not a good transition (laughs) given the one stress two family time you know that we had like missed out on and three like that mentality right like you can't patrol fort stewart georgia like you patrol baghdad iraq um and so that was just i mean the the way the rotations were working at the time, like you would get home and know when you were going again. Misty, one thing we haven't overtly addressed. I mean, we, we talked about a little bit at the beginning, the, the idea that you are a female soldier in a combat arms-like unit operating in Baghdad at a time where the army and the military is trying to figure out what the role of women in combat was. How did that impact you? How did that impact your soldiers? Because you mentioned you had female MPs. Yeah, so I think, you know, a couple things like... Y- there were only certain branches open to us at the time. Um, but with that being said, the military police branch has been uh, of mixed gender and fully integrated f- since, I don't know, forever, like the 70s at least, um, probably well before that. And by mixed gender, I mean like literally the platoons, like training at the schoolhouse. Like when you go to the field, there's not like female tents and male tents. Like you sleep with your team, squad, platoon, whatever. Um, and so... It wasn't really obvious to me until I got to Baghdad. My experience growing up at OBC in the field with my platoon was not like my brothers in the combat arms. And so I would show up as a talk, you know, they've just requisitioned like an MP platoon or whatever, and they have my call sign. So they know that Rough Rider 6 is showing up for whatever the said operation is. Um, and so more than once I'd walk into a infantry battalion or brigade talk and I'd be like, hey, sir, you know, it's the battle captain. So literally a captain or a major, like I'm Lieutenant so-and-so. I'm- <coughs> I'm your MP platoon leader. And it's like that like blank stare, like, oh, um, can you be here? Do you know what your mission is? Like, I don't I don't really know what to do with you. Um, because at the time, like whether you were fires or engineers or a support MOS, like you weren't assigned below, I believe, the brigade level. So it's very unusual for them to see female soldiers and then let alone fight beside them, right? So we there was kind of that dynamic. On the flip side, they didn't have female soldiers to assist with the mission. And that's what we talked about earlier, you know, like the cultural sensitivity and the mixed genders required for searching um, pedestrians or, you know, at a a checkpoint. Um, All of that was required. So how do we, you know, get the female MPs integrated? How do we prevent that from truly breaking up the unit integrity for my own unit in order to augment somebody else's but then going into Iraq 
you know, we were cognizant of the fact that they were very separate. And uh, by that, I mean, like, the males and females are, are not mixing. Depending on where you were in Baghdad and what sect you were operating with, uh, more than once I walked in and I was refused. They wouldn't talk to me. If they shook my hand, they were horrified. They had to go wash their hands, and I was asked to leave. When I was living in a platoon, uh, in a police station with my platoon, I very quickly realized that my driver, Specialist Benson, who was about 6'2", 250, football player from Texas, was much more effective at telling the police chief what to do than I was, even though I was the lieutenant. So I actually worked mids so that my platoon sergeant could work with the police chief during the day. And then at night, I would just have Benson tell the police what to do um, because I knew that I had no credibility or wasta in the, the culture there. And so we were an anomaly. I would say by the probably the second or third deployment, it became everyone became much more comfortable with the fact that a soldier was going to show up and nobody really cared anymore that it was a female soldier or male soldier. Like everybody was doing similar mission sets. And, and there was just kind of some credibility there, I think, that wasn't historically. You mentioned living at a police station. At what point in the deployment did your unit transition out into these small Iraqi police stations? I feel like it was still the summertime. So it was probably about five or six months in. First, we're using the police stations really as our own kind of cops, even though combat outposts didn't exist at the time like that nomenclature we were starting to regrow reestablish the iraqi police and so we took up residence uh, and we brought in the class four to put out jersey barriers to provide physical security and standoff and to kind of reset the infrastructure um and as we did that, we literally solicited and welcomed the police back. And so some of the police were former Iraqi police and some were just new recruits, new hires or people interested in the mission set. Um, so we did a lot of initial vetting, a, little, a lot of initial biometric enrollment, uh, and a lot of just very basic policing uh, skill set training, like how to respond to calls, how to go out and patrol, how to be proactive. And so that was a pretty perpetual mission set for military police, really for the duration of the Iraq war. We were also working through the police academy. So there was pretty good continuity uh, and combined efforts uh, at Echelon, at least in Baghdad. You mentioned in your, in your previous statement about living with the Iraqi police and living in those stations. As the war went on, that was certainly a risky venture. And, and did you face that threat level initially, or was it a relatively easy transition to bring the Iraqi police back for you? Bringing the Iraqi police back was actually not as hard as it sounds. Um, many of them came back willingly. I think you know, a lot of it was probably associated with a known paycheck kind of that ownership of local security. Many of them, most of them lived and worked in the same um, like patrol district, if you will. Um, and so reestablishing the local police was one thing, but reestablishing security um, was another. And so we worked very closely with them to kind of build that standoff, um, develop kind of some basic 
tactics and procedures for, you know, allowing personnel or vehicles to approach the station. Many of the stations just kind of across Baghdad were frequently hit with either small arms fire, mortar fire, uh, eventually V-bids. Um, kind of took over. So we were cognizant of the fact that it, it was an urban target. Um, there was a lot of uh, congested roadways in and around. Uh, and so we augmented the Iraqi police security. And by that, I mean, we had soldiers out on the gates for access control. We had soldiers on the roof. Um, we had our own comms station. And um, we had worked with the maneuver community and the aviators. So they know kind of where we were, who we were, what our call signs were. And then we had, you know, QRFs, of course, uh, by, with, and through the various American FOBs. So whomever was closest would respond. And so we did all this early on. And every time, you know, somebody would get hit, unfortunately, we would improve, 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 uh, kind of just continuing to refine our foxhole, so to speak. We eventually got interceptor vests and uh, they were so heavy and so hot and so cumbersome that oftentimes when we got to the police stations we would just kind of drop them thinking uh, we would just don them in the case of an attack i don't know why we thought this was a good idea but (coughs) for whatever it was it was the common practice at the time and one day brigade battalion company they were like that's it we are going to wear our vests everywhere doesn't matter you're if you are not on an american fob like you have to have your vests on and so there was a lot of grumbling as you can imagine it's by that point it's probably august it's like 120 degrees it's hot it's hard to move around but that was the rule and so i was working with the team to just kind of get that enforced and have that become the standard we were it's late at night. It's the middle of the night. I'm sleeping, like literally I'm sleeping on the floor in the police station. And uh, all of a sudden I hear this commotion and I sit straight up uh, and I'm like, what has gone on? And they were like, they shot Ponce. I'm like, what are you talking about? <clears throat> and I can hear the fire going, you know, like we're returning fire. Like I'm astute enough now that I understand when we're firing versus when somebody else is firing. I'm like, this is not good. So I race up to the roof so I have a vantage point and I can see what's going on. And um, it, everything seems to have died down. We've returned fire to the best of our ability. It starts to get quiet again. And I go back downstairs to the talk to send up the spot report. And my soldier is standing there. He's a specialist. He's one of my best guys. And he is white as a ghost and his appearance and his demeanor. And I'm like, oh my God, what is, like, what is wrong with you? And he was like, I got shot, but I can't see any blood. I can't figure out what is wrong with him. And had hit his vest. He'd been shot point blank, like literally, like just walking the perimeter. Somebody reached through the fence line. Um, They were like brick fences, so you really didn't have a lot of visibility. And we didn't have very good light sets, as you can imagine back then. Um, And so he took a round right above like his belly button, like right where the plate was ending. Uh, And it knocked the wind out of him clearly. And he, it scared him, scared all of us. Um, But he lived like bruised up, banged up, but he lived to tell about it, probably held onto that plate and that vest for the rest of his life. Um, but we learned very quickly, like, like seriously, PPE is important. Like, just wear it. Like, it will save your life. And so I think, you know, w- I'm very grateful that we learned the lesson, kind of the easy way instead of the hard way of what it shoulda, coulda um, in that instance. 
Misty, I want to thank you for your time today and for being on The Spear. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.